growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. We need to know in the face of what happened in Haiti or what may be happening in our lives or what may happen tomorrow, we need to know that there's a God on the throne who is large and in charge. Earlier this week, the island of Haiti was struck by a massive earthquake. All week, our television screens have been filled with the images of widespread destruction. The death toll may reach into the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands have been left devastated in the aftermath of the quake. Anytime something like this happens, it's easy to wonder where God is in all of it. Why do these types of things happen? Why do people have to go through sufferings and that sort of thing? Well, the early church probably wondered the same thing at times. Christians had been suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ, and it was about to get much worse. They needed to know that God was there. John's word to the churches then and the words to us today are still the same. Listen. I know about suffering. I'm suffering too. I know what it is to go through trials. I'm going through trials too. But listen to this God that I saw. Listen to this description so that no matter what comes into your life or happens to you or you go through or you have to experience no matter how tragic or terrible or, or even trivial, God is large and in charge. He's on his throne. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to this week's Crosswalk. Well, today we continue our study entitled The Revelation, and Pastor Clay is taking us to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, where we find a description of Jesus Christ and a declaration from Him that would be an encouragement to the church then and an encouragement to us today. We hope you enjoy this week's message. good opportunity to deal with a subject matter that is probably on on most people's hearts. You know, why do these uh, types of things happen? Why do people uh, have to go through sufferings and and that sort of thing? And and the truth is that some of those things are are within the purview of the knowledge of God and some things we may not fully understand uh, until someday when we get to heaven. And maybe we won't even understand them there, but but it probably won't matter uh, anymore as we come into the presence of the one that we have uh, given our life to and trusted in. It is easier for us, and it's just a natural thing to do. Uh, Job's buddies, Job's friends, uh, man, they were doing good for, for about the first seven days or something. They're doing fine, but, but it, it just tends to be our, 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 uh, our tendency, it, it, it seems to be, to, to go towards saying, well, you know, something must have had, somebody must have done something or whatever. The problem that we run into with that type of thinking, or at least one of the problems we run into, is that... Um, even in the case of Haiti, uh, there, there were churches destroyed. There were strong believers in Jesus Christ killed. I, I heard this morning about a retired Methodist pastor uh, who was now working with an agency in, uh, in, in helping out under, uh, third world and underprivileged nations uh, who was in Haiti. He and several members of his team were killed uh, in the earthquake. So, so part of the problem you run into is that, is that believers are experiencing that as well. Believers go through some of the things and, and don't escape some of the things as well. So y- you better be careful before you automatically speak for God and say, well, that's God dealing with a situation. There was a situation in the first century church as well that uh, needed to be addressed in, in a lot of different ways as a result of what was going on, what was transpiring, and what was going to transpire um, God had John, we've already established that that was John the Apostle, write a letter, a revelation, an unveiling that came to him from Jesus Christ. We are 
uh, in now our third week of the Revelation. We haven't gotten out of chapter 1 yet, but uh, by the grace of God, we will get out of chapter 1 today. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20 this morning is where we are. If you brought a, a copy of God's Word, you can feel free to open to it. The text will also be up on the screen as well. If you'd like to take notes, there's an outline on the back of your information sheet. And you've even got a little desk that you can pull up there and write on if that, that helps you. You were probably given a pen when you came in. By the way, uh, those pens, um, we do encourage you, if you get a pen each week, you know, we go through a lot of pens each week. Folks take them home. That's fine. We, we want you to do that. But what we'd love for you to do is to lose it someplace. Uh, lose it at a restaurant. Lose it at, at uh, your workplace. Just, just lose it around uh, somewhere. And uh, there you go. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, picking up from where we ended, or finished last week in verse 8. Uh, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet, saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, thank you so much today for this revelation, this unveiling. Even already in chapter 1, there are uh, some things that, uh, that perhaps are a little strange to us, Lord God, this whole thing about lampstands and and stars in your hand, and this two-edged sword that comes out of your 
mouth and this description of you, Lord, uh, we want to rightly handle your word. We want to accurately divide it. And not just so that we can go out of here and say that we did that, but so that our lives can be impacted and changed as a result of it. Father, my prayer has been, will continue to be throughout this study of the book of Revelation, that it would be more than informational, but that it would be transformational. That as a result of the of the unveiling that we discover within this book, that you would take it and impact our lives in a way that, that we will never be the same as a result of it. So accomplish your purposes and your will uh, through me, your messenger boy. I'm just honored to have that privilege today. May our hearts, our minds, our spirits be open and receptive to what you would say. And may your name be glorified. Amen. Okay, we're, you know, we're walking through it verse by verse by verse at this point. We, there, will be, there will come places where we'll pick up larger chunks at a time, uh, still covering the context of the verse. But right now, really, as John's still in this opening greeting, still in this opening uh, uh, salutation to the churches that he's writing to, it really is, I think, is important to walk through this thing verse by verse by verse and look at it so that we have a, a really clear understanding of who it is John's writing to, what it is that John is saying, and what it means for our lives. So, this morning in verse 9, it says, I'm just walk back through it again. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is a, John is suffering. He is suffering for his faith, his belief in Jesus Christ. Uh, specifically, he says that he is a fellow partaker. See, the, the churches, they were already under some persecution. The, the Roman government was beginning more and more to clamp down on, on, on who Christianity, what Christianity was and who Christians were and their, their exclusive devotion to this one called Christ and their refusal to, to bow down and acknowledge emperor, to acknowledge Caesar as God. And so it was, it was bad. It was only going to get worse. And, and John says, hey, I'm with you. I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation. What I like is that he adds, and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus. I, I think that's really uh, significant both for the churches that he's writing to and for the church today. I think it's important that we understand that he says, I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus. Because I think what it says to us is, is that while John says, yes, I'm suffering, but that's not where my focus is. He's focusing instead on on the reason for his suffering, on the reason for his tribulation. I'm a fellow partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance. Technically, the definite article is not in in any of those. It's only one definite article for the whole thing. Uh, For a, a fellow partaker in the tribulation, kingdom, perseverance. So, so instead of focusing and saying, oh, why me? Oh, poor, poor, pitiful me. I'm suffering. I'm having to go through this. And why am I having to do all this? Instead, John seems to be focused on the fact that this is for the kingdom. The kingdom is ultimately what matters and that God is working out his plans and he is, he is being sustained. He is carrying 
being carried through this by the perseverance that comes from his faith in Jesus Christ. He's saying, uh, yeah, I'm with you. I know what it is to suffer, but, but listen, I, 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 it's the kingdom and I'm persevering through Jesus. That's what's making a difference. I think that's important. Specifically, John was on the island of Patmos. It's a small island, uh, I think about six miles, anywhere from, from five, six miles wide, about ten miles long in the Aegean Sea, uh, off the coast of, of Asia Minor. And it was on this island. It's kind of a barren, rocky, from what I've seen pictures, I've seen kind of a rocky, pretty much treeless island. There's some reports that there was mining going on there and that part of John's uh, 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 penalty may, uh, may have been that he was also having to work the mines. And remember, he's, 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 he's an old man by this point in his life. And, and especially for that day and age, he's, he's, he's up in age. And, uh, and so he's there, he's on this island of Patmos, and he's suffering for, his, for the word, for the testimony, for his testimony in Jesus Christ. So, uh, John is not in, sitting in some, you know, comfortable, uh, safe little place somewhere saying, uh, okay, you guys, hang in there. You know, y'all do good. Yeah, I know it's rough, but y'all, y'all hang in there. No, John is right there in the suffering. He says, I'm with you in this. But I'm also with you in this, in the kingdom and the perseverance of Jesus. I, I think that's significant. He was placed on the island of Patmos by the Roman government in an attempt to stop the spread of Christianity. It didn't work. It didn't work because, listen, can I, can I say this to you? Maybe this will speak to somebody in this place today. Because there is no place, there is no place that you can be or where your situation or your circumstances put you, that God cannot still use you to accomplish his kingdom purposes. As a matter of fact, I have discovered in my life that it is in the, it is in the deepest places, it is in the darkest places and times of my life that God seems to be able to use me to the most significant amount. And so it is with John. Yeah, he's locked away on an island, but he's still uh, active and, and being used by God for his kingdom purposes. John's a fellow partaker in this with those churches. Verse 10, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. It's a bit of a mysterious statement. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. There's been a lot of discussion about that through the years, exactly what uh, John uh, means uh, by that. I'll just be honest with you. I, I don't think that it means that John was, you know, like in any kind of trance or that he was hypnotized or, or anything like that. That's not how God apparently used uh, the, the writers of Scripture. He, it, it wasn't like they were just hypnotized and they just wrote. God used their personalities. He used their education. He used their, uh, their passions. He used all of that in the recording of his word. I think what it means when John says he was in the Spirit is, is that John had placed himself in position to hear God speak to him in, in a particularly in a special way that that revelation of Scripture was given. We can't say for sure how exactly it was because God's not doing this anymore. It was closed with this book. That was the end of what's considered special revelation. Nothing, God's not revealing new things to prophets. But I think what it means is John was praying. John was, was probably fasting. John was was before the Lord God, and he was just saying, God, I'm here. What do you want to do through me? What do you, what do you want to say to me? When, when Christ began to give John this 
vision. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, there's, there's one little word in there that I want you to particularly take notice of. There's one word in there that's a key word for the book of Revelation. There are a number of words that may be key words for the book of Revelation, but this one happens to be one of them. And that word is the word like. Like. I want you to write that down in your notes if you like to take notes. That, that little key word is the word like. Like is a word that shows up a lot in the book of Revelation, and you need to take notice of it. It, in, in the opening chapter alone, in the opening chapter alone, um, he, he talks about uh, uh, like the sound of a trumpet in verse 10. Um, in verse 14, his head and hair were like white wool, like snow, eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, uh, on and on. Verse uh, 17, on down through there. This word like, 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 like. You need to pay attention to this, particularly in the book of Revelation. Anytime we interpret Scripture, particularly in the book of Revelation. Because what you need to remember is that as John goes through this book, he's giving you what Christ is giving to him. And some of the things that, that God begins to reveal to John, he's never really even seen before. Or he's not seen something quite like that before. And so he's trying to describe it to his, his readers, both in the first century and even still us today. He's trying to describe something that's, that maybe he's never even seen before. Or it's not like something he's seen before. So he's trying to give as good a description as he possibly can as he begins to do that. Like a voice. Like the sound of a trumpet. So in other words, when, when John says that in verse 10... Behind me, a voice like the sound of a trumpet. He's not necessarily saying, I heard a trumpet. What he's saying is, or he may be saying that it, that it had the clarity, that his voice had the clarity of a trumpet. Or he may be saying that his, that his voice commanded the, the attention of, of a note of a trumpet. Or he may have maybe been saying that, that the voice had the, had the volume of a trumpet. Or it may have been a little bit of all of that, but... This word like is a key word, and you'll see further on into the book of Revelation when he begins to describe some of the things, uh, why that word is so important. In verse 11, he says, saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. And, and you see those on the, on the map that comes up, uh, the seven churches that John, John is writing to on Asia Minor, uh, Ephesus, Laodicea is down there, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, Pergamum. Um, these these uh, cities were they were actual literal cities, and there were actual literal churches that had begun there. Uh, some at some point, in some way, the message of Jesus had come there. People had received that message, and a church had been founded. And remember, when we're talking about church. We're not necessarily talking about bricks and mortar. We're not talking about a steeple outside on, on the roof. What we're talking about is a group of, of believers gathered together that most of them almost certainly met in homes. They might have occasionally met in, uh, in some other places. But, but they were meeting together. They were growing. They were learning. They were worshiping. And they were serving their God. These churches were come together. Write this down. Send it to those seven churches. And then in verse 12, he says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now we'll handle the lampstands at the end, or more particularly, Jesus will handle it, but we'll talk about it at the end. Verse 13, 
And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Let me talk about this, this whole thing uh, for just a few minutes, 13 really all the way through uh, 16. We'll talk about the lampstands, but Jesus starts out in verse 13, says, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. So here's these lampstands. There are seven individual lampstands, and in John's vision, he sees them. They're apparently in a, in a circular uh, position, and in the middle of the one, he says, One like a son of man. Now, son of man, some of you may know, was a very popular uh, reference that Jesus used himself in referring to himself. You go back in the Gospels, you'll find several places where Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Why John says, like a Son of Man, it's open for debate. Not really sure why he says that. It could be, and, and we read the description just a moment ago, we'll, we'll look at it again. It could be that as John looks at this person, whoever is in there in that circle and surrounded by these lampstands, as John looks in there and, and, and you heard that description, it could be that John says, well, it, it looks like a man, but, but not like any man I've ever seen before. It's possible that John recognized him as Jesus, but he doesn't look exactly like the Jesus he knew when they walked and talked together on earth roughly 60 years earlier. And John may have been actually referencing Jesus' uh, term for himself, son of man. He's like, it looks like, he looks like a man, but, but it's not like any man I've ever seen before. Listen to this description. He's clothed in a robe reaching to his feet. And girded across his chest with a golden sash. It, it was more than a belt. It was, it was kind of a sign of, of nobility. It was a sash that would have been worn higher up around the, the chest area. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, which I take to mean, quite honestly, that, that his voice commanded respect, that it, that it carried. Well, you ever been around a waterfall? I've never been to Niagara Falls. I've seen pictures of it. But, but even, even what would be a smaller waterfall, the, the volume of water pouring over the falls as it, as it makes this, this commanding sound that usually overpowers everything else around it. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When you read this description of, of Jesus that John gives, it really is no wonder that John, as it says, falls at Jesus' feet as a dead man. It's just this, this magnificent view of, of this one who clearly is Christ. There's, there's no question about that. And Jesus says as much in, in, when he makes his declaration in a moment. But... John falls as a dead man into the, in, in the presence of this one who is not like anyone he's ever seen before and certainly not necessarily like the Jesus that walked on the earth. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. Wearsby says, The whole vision of Christ that John sees and describes was totally different in appearance from the Savior that John knew when he was ministering on earth. 
He was not the meek and mild Jewish carpenter anymore. He is the risen, glorified, exalted Son of God, the priest king who has the authority to judge all men. It's no wonder he fell at his feet. That really is the description of Christ that you and I need to carry with us today. To pick up on Wearsby's idea, ladies and gentlemen, listen, he's not the little baby in the manger anymore. He's not the mild uh, carpenter from Nazareth anymore. He's not even the suffering servant anymore. I, I'm, I'm not picking on the Catholic uh, tradition, but, but uh, a crucifix is a prominent uh, thing in a, in a Catholic uh, setting, a picture of, or, or a, a, a cross with Christ on the cross. And I understand the purpose for that is to remind us of the sacrifice that he made for us. But ladies and gentlemen, this is our Savior now. This is our description This is what he looks like today. As Rich Mullins so aptly uh, puts it, that cross has turned to dust and those nails have turned to rust. This is the Christ that you and I worship today. And John's description of him is so great and so glorious, it leaves us with, with no further need for explanation than to say, man, Look at this, at this one. Uh, the two-edged sword uh, in verse 16 is a reference to the Word of God. It shows up again in Revelation 19.15. You'll see it when we get there one of these days. Um, but uh, Hebrews uh, 4.12, Ephesians 6.17 make it clear to us that it's a reference to the Word of God. In, in other words, it's saying that, that Christ and, and His Word is what will judge and rightly judge the nations. Everything about this description speaks of His royalty. It speaks of His deity. It speaks of His power. It speaks of His strength. It speaks of, of this, this God who is the God who is overseeing everything that is going on. It's crystal clear. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. That's kind of like that Alpha and Omega reference that he made last week. This description is of a God who, who's in control, which really brings us to the to the BP squared today. It really brings us to the big picture biblical principle that, that John has been building up through all through chapter 1. And, and the BP squared, the, the big picture biblical principle is simply this. God is large and in charge. If anything comes out of this, this chapter 1 salutation, it ought to be that. And remember, this is exactly what those churches need to hear. And by the way, it's exactly what we need to hear still today. We need to know in, in the face of, of what happened in Haiti or what may be happening in our lives or what may happen tomorrow, we need to know that there's a God on the throne who is large and in charge. Last week, last week the, the BP squared was everything's going to be all right because we saw that in his resume and all of that. This week we see it in his description. God is large and in charge. He's been building this whole thing up to, to let us know, hey, God's on his throne. God's on his throne. He's in charge. And I want you to to look and see at some of the things that he's in charge of. When I saw him, again, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first 
and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Let me, let me just remind you a couple things that he's in charge of. First, he's in charge of the church. Jesus is in charge of the church. Uh, th- that's pretty clear from these seven lampstands that are, that are gathered around him. Here's Christ in the middle of them. It's Christ who's, who's uh, the one, the focus of their attention. It's Christ who's providing them the power that they need in their lives. He's in charge of the church. And as they, as they look to him for their strength and for their power, they understand that he is the one who is in charge. He's also in charge, and we're going we're gonna to look at it in just a minute. He's also in charge of the pastors, which is ultimately what I think he's, he's getting at in those seven stars, and we'll talk about that. He's in charge. It doesn't belong to, the church doesn't belong to the people. It doesn't belong to the, to the pastors or the elders of the church. The church belongs to Christ. It's his. He's in charge of it. He's also in charge of life and death. That's what he says when he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, God, it's true to say that God has always been in charge of life and death, but he proved it by dying and, and rising from the dead, conquering death physically. And so it's, it's his. Life and death are in his hands. And ultimately, he's in charge of the conclusion. He's in charge of the outcome when it comes out. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these past, present, future. It's all in God's hands. God's large and in charge. I don't know if that's a word that you need to hear today or not. I don't know what's going on in your life, and you probably don't know what all is going on in my life. But John's word to the churches then and the words to to us today are still the same. Listen, I know about suffering. I'm suffering too. I know what it is to go through trials. I'm going through trials too. But listen to this God that I saw. Listen, listen to this description. Listen to his declaration. So that no matter what comes into your life or happens to you or you go through or you have to experience no matter how tragic or terrible or or even trivial, God is large and in charge. He's on his throne. Verse 20 is one of those places where Jesus actually interprets the Scripture for us. He tells us the answers to these symbols. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The lampstands, that's easy. Lampstands, those are the seven churches. He says that. The seven literal, actual churches that he's writing to. Those the names that we read a moment ago that show up there in verse 11. And remember, in some shape or fashion, those seven churches represent the, the church throughout history. They, they represent even us today. Those same characteristics that they describe in those churches are the same ones that are here. So, the seven 
lampstands, those are the seven churches. And as I said, they are encircled. And here is Christ in the middle of them. He's the one they're focused on. He's the one they're finding their power and their strength from. The stars, that's a little more, that's a little trickier, let me say. Now, Jesus tells us what the stars are. He says, the the stars that I held in my right hand, the, the seven stars, those are the seven angels. Unfortunately, that's all he says. What does he mean by angels? Now, I know what we we automatically think of when we hear the word angel. We think of an angel, a a spiritual angelic being. And it is possible that that's exactly what Jesus meant. It could be that he is referring to guardian angels, if you will, that oversee uh, these churches. There is some scriptural support for the idea of a guardian angel type of structure within the economy of God. Let me give you a couple of verses, uh, just in case you're curious uh, about that, that deal with that. Um, Jesus, these people are gathered around him. He's got the children with him in Matthew chapter 18. He says, see that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. The implication it's a vague reference, granted, but the implication seems to be that, that these little ones, these children, that they have angels that are before the Father and they're, 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 they're there for them. There's another example, uh, again, vague, but an example in Acts chapter 12 where Peter had been arrested and the church is gathered and they're praying for him and they say, oh, oh God, let Peter go. God, don't, don't let him put Peter to death and God, let Peter go. And, and so uh, God, you know, sends an angel, busts the cell out, uh, the door open and Peter comes out and he goes to the house of the people where they're, they gather at the house and they're praying. Y'all remember that story if you've read it before? And of course, uh, being the spiritual people that they are, they don't believe that it's Peter when the uh, little servant girl says, hey, Peter's at the door. And they say, no, no, he can't be. He's in prison. We're, we know he's in prison. We're praying for him to get out of prison. And uh, so uh, in Acts chapter 12, it says, this is what they say to the, to the, to the girl. You're out of your mind. Uh, they told her when she kept insisting that it was so. They said, it must be his angel. So, I cannot definitively say to you that he's not referring to actual angels. He, he may be, and, and that's a possibility. I, I will tell you this, for me, that explanation leaves more questions than it does answers. Uh, so, that, it's not really, I don't think that's what he's saying, but you can't say definitively. It's possible when he says the seven angels. Oh, and remember this. When, when you hear the word angels, the Greek word that the New Testament was originally written in is angelos. It's just transliterated over in English. Uh, the word simply means messenger or messengers if it's plural. That, that's all the word means. We automatically, as I said, associate, you know, wings and flying around and, and everything. And rightfully so. They show up numerous places in Scripture. But the word itself simply means messengers. So it is possible that John or that Christ actually is, is simply saying that there were seven messengers sent from the seven churches to John to receive this letter that he was going to give. They may have been just seven messengers sent to receive the letters. That's possible as well. My position is, and not, and not mine only, a lot of Bible students hold to the position that Christ is referring to the seven pastors of the seven churches that he names. And that those pastors are the messengers to deliver God's message to the people. 
that it's their responsibility to, to study the Word of God, to rightly divide it, as Paul tells Timothy, and to bring the, the instruction, bring the truth to God's people, to instruct them in God's Word. And so they are, in that sense, messengers. It's my conviction that he's probably referring to the seven pastors of the churches. Can't say it definitively. See, there are some places in the book of Revelation, you need to understand this, there's some places in the book of Revelation that you're, that you're left without a, a concrete complete answer that you may want. There are ideas, they're, they're, we're going to get to the, to the conclusion where we need to get, but as to who these seven stars are, could be angel, could be actual angels, could be people that went to pick up the letters, or it could be the pastors of the seven churches. To me, that one probably fits the best in its context. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, he's saying I, I, I am in the midst of and empowering the, the churches or the church, these seven churches gathered around him, and I hold in my hand the pastors of those churches. What is he saying? This is mine. This is mine. This, this church, this thing which I have begun, this is mine. I'm in charge of it. Remember, they needed to hear that. Because times were hard, and they were going to get a lot harder, and they needed to know. No, no, listen. I know what it looks like. No, 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 listen. I know what you're going through. No, I, I know what you have. Listen. God is large and in charge. Don't forget, this is what he looks like. Take your focus off of your circumstances and focus on this one who is clothed in a robe that flows to the ground and a golden sash whose hair is is white, white like like pure wool or or snow, whose eyes are, are like a burning flame, whose feet are are bronze, burnished color, It's strength. It's power. It's the God who's large and in charge. Whatever comes your way tomorrow, be it job loss, uh, a family dispute, a health issue, an earthquake, whatever it is that comes your way or my way today or tomorrow or the next day or the next day, John opens up his letter by describing to us the God who we can look to in the midst of all of those circumstances. Now, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, which we'll get into chapter 2 next week, chapter 2 and chapter 3, John uh, through uh, Christ, through John, begins to give this message directly to the churches. And, and I think you'll understand more clearly why he's making sure the church understands that he's in charge because he's about to give a message to those seven churches that they need it to hear and that we need to hear still today. And then on through all the stuff that we hear about, all the, the plagues, the bowls, the, uh, the, all the stuff that, that happens, it's important to start with the premise that God is on his throne that God is large and in charge. It looked pretty bleak for the churches in John's time. The apostle, who himself was being persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ, saw his Savior in a whole new light. John had known Jesus as the Lamb slain, but now he was seeing the Lord as the one who was firmly in control of everything. No matter what things may look like for us, by faith we need to understand that God 
is large and in charge. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh. But instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you. Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.